This morning we return to Genesis. We'll start chapter 4 this morning. And it's not pretty, so prepare yourselves for that in some ways. Um, but it ends well, so don't worry. Um, we've been talking, of course, about the results of Adam's disobedience and what that introduced into the world. But we've also been talking about the promise uh, that God gave even then and uh, how that sort of unfolds in the world. And we're going to see uh, today and next week particularly about sort of these, these parallels that begin to exist uh, within the world. But uh, first, why don't we read Genesis 1, uh, sorry, 4, 1 through 16. Adam lay with his wife, Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why is your face so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do... uh, Not do what is right. Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer upon the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain, so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. May God bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, we ask that you would help us not to judge Cain so much as to see ourselves as similar to him. That we might not just 
gloss over this and go, well, this doesn't have anything to say about me. But may your Spirit work in us that we might see the places where we are like Him, that we might cry out for Christ all the more. We ask this in His name. Amen. Crime and Punishment. Not sure how many of you have heard of that book. You may have seen one of the adaptations on TV. Like many Russian novels, it's really thick. It's not the thickest of Dostoevsky's novels, but it's pretty big. And it always confuses me because Dostoevsky likes to give nicknames to all of his characters, but not let one nickname. It's like six. So I can never keep the cast of characters straight. But it's really about this young man who is a graduate student. Apologies to all of our graduate students here today. Who thinks he's so smart that he could conceive of the perfect crime. And the idea of committing this perfect crime settles into his heart and this temptation grows and he finally decides that he will kill someone that he thinks nobody will miss because everybody hates. The woman who runs the pawn shop. He thinks that no one likes her because of what she does, because of her function in that society, and so eventually he kills her. And then the rest of the story is about Basically two things. The policeman who will not stop looking for her killer and how he descends into insanity through guilt, creating sin upon sin. Once Pandora's box is opened, you can't close it again. And and things get worse and worse. And so what we see here is that Pandora's box has been opened because of what Adam did. And it can't be closed up again. And it gets worse than it has been before. But the big idea (laughs) is that Jesus ultimately is the only refuge from sin and its power. I'm going to talk about this in four ways, and they're not, the connections will not be obvious, and that's okay. It's more, okay, what is this text dealing with? And let's talk about that this morning. So don't expect a beautiful outlined three-point sermon. All right? First part of this that I see is that God's promised seed isn't fulfilled in earthly family. I just inserted earthly there, so don't worry if you think you're missing something. What we find is that Adam knew Eve, and they had a son, and she named him Possession. That's what Cain means in Hebrew. Possession. Her statement initially is sort of ambiguous. She says, with the help of the Lord, I have made or acquired a man. And we're not sure where the emphasis lies in her statement. Is it on as a gratitude? With the help of the Lord, I did this. Or is it sort of, I did this. Is she taking, uh, she's seeing this sort of as something that, that she has done, something that she has, has accomplished, and is sort of an ambiguity that exists there, but I think because of the name of her son, there's more going on than meets the eye. I suspect that she thinks that Cain was the seed that God would send to crush the head of the serpent. I suspect that she thinks this is the one that they have been waiting for. That already God's promise is about to be fulfilled, and the serpent shall be crushed. What's also interesting to me as I think about this section is that Adam is largely absent. What does he do? He shows up to make babies. 
about all you see Adam doing here. Eve is naming the children. Adam is largely absent. They have another child. She names him Breath. It's a lot different than possession, don't you think? And there's no great statement as to why she did this. But breath seems far less significant than possession. Fleeting. It points, I think, to the fleeting nature of Abel's life. Before you know it, it's going to be gone, like a breath is gone. But I think it points to more the reality that she valued Cain more than she valued Abel. And we're going to see this pattern repeated throughout Genesis. One child preferred above another, often with very disastrous consequences taking place. I think part of what's going on here, and maybe it's just because I listen to Mark Driscoll too much, he talks about, in a sermon on the early parts of Genesis, he talks about the false gospels that arise in the early parts of Genesis. As humanity tries to fix the mess that Adam has brought, instead of relying upon God's solution. Okay. And one of the solutions, the false gospel that he brings up is family. Okay. And you gotta, don't want to misunderstand this. Family is good. It's created by God. But what happens sometimes is that it bears a weight that it was never intended to bear. We place our hopes of salvation in our families at times. And I think that's exactly what she's doing here. We sometimes think that if, if we just raise our kids the right way, that if we can avoid all of those nasty outside influences, that everything will work out just right, that our kids will be good and perfect and saved and all of this kind of stuff. And what we will find here is that that's not true. There were no bad influences. There was no rap music. There was no... There were no video games that promoted violence to incline him towards responding with anger and destruction. There was no bad kid across the street like the kids who lived across the street from me when I was growing up. They were a bad influence on me. It's a good thing they moved away before I became a teenager. All of those things are not there. All we find is this one family. And yet all hell breaks loose in this one family. I just overstated the case. There's something else there as well. But we often place our hopes in the wrong thing, and as a result, we suffer crushing disappointment. So let's go to sort of the next part of this story, is that God examines the heart to exalt those of faith or those who believe. We find that Adam, uh, sorry, that uh, Cain and Abel had very different occupations. We find that Cain was someone who worked the ground. He was a farmer, but Abel was a shepherd. He looked after flocks. We see that both of them make offerings reflecting their vocations. Now, this is something, this part of Genesis often opens up lots of questions that we really can't answer. Like this one. How did they know they were supposed to make an offering? Now, it's easy to say, and this is probably what happened, is because we find God talking to Cain, that he communicated to either Adam and Eve or to them something about what they were to do in this life before the flood. 
And so for one reason or another, they offer sacrifices. But what is significant here, and what we need to know, is that God looked with approval upon Abel, but did not look with approval upon Cain. God looked with approval upon the one that Eve didn't approve of very much. But how did Cain know that God looked with approval upon Abel, but not himself? And I think it has to do partially with God's response to Cain. If you do right, will you not be exalted or elevated? And so there's this idea that somehow Abel was elevated above his brother, exalted above his brother in a way that we, we he had the favor of God in a way that would probably make the prosperity teachers happy, I think. Because I think his flocks prospered. And Cain saw this. He saw what good was happening to his brother, but was not happening to him. But why is it that God looked with favor upon Abel and his sacrifice and, and didn't toward Cain and his sacrifice? I think part of that is answered in Hebrews 11. Because it was by faith that Abel offered his sacrifice. And so what was missing is faith. Cain offered out of a heart of unbelief. He, he made the offering. He made the sacrifice. But he offered it out of unbelief. Now, he was not an atheist. He knew God existed. In fact, God's about to talk to him. Okay? If he, if he wasn't positive before, then he was pretty certain afterwards. Okay? It's not that he did not believe there was a God, it was that he did not trust God. He lacked faith. Secondly, as we look at Genesis chapter 4, we find something else that's significant there in terms of what they offered. Because the Hebrew word there, minyah, usually is used in Leviticus to point to the offering of the first fruits. And so what we find Cain giving is just some of the fruit of his land. But the text is very specific about what Abel gives. He gave the fattest portions of the firstborn, the first fruits, the best. Abel, I'm sorry, Cain just gave what was there. He, he just kind of, well, okay, I guess this will do. As opposed to looking for the best he had to say, this is worthy of my God. This reveals that I trust him to provide for me in the future instead of clinging and holding back to the best stuff for myself. Okay? So even there, this unbelief is at work. But Abel's faith is at work in giving God the best lambs. Not just that. But thirdly, Cain wanted to be exalted. But it seems like he really didn't want God himself. Meaning, he wanted the gifts that God offered, but he didn't want God himself. And so God sees all of this in his heart, knows what's going on, and does not look with favor upon him and his offering. What's going on here? 
it's important for us to reckon with this because Cain, from outward appearances, if it was just you and I watching this scene unfold, he would look religious and righteous, wouldn't he? He's bringing an offering. He's showing up. And yet something else very different is going on within his heart. His heart was captured by self-centeredness and sin. The Israelites needed to hear this. Why did they need to hear that? Because some of them would be just like Cain. They'd show up at the feasts. They'd bring their offering, but their heart wasn't in it. They were obeying, but it was not out of faith. They were going through the motions of their, of their cultural beliefs, but not really believing, not really trusting. Just trying to look good. And it's not just them back there in the Old Testament. What's one of the first things that happens in the New Testament? After Pentecost. We have all this great stuff happening. Then all of a sudden we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas, this is going to make sense in a second. Barnabas sells property, gives it to the church so they may help the poor. What happens? Everyone elevates Barnabas. What do Ananias and Sapphira want? To be elevated in the eyes of the people. That's what they sought. And so what they did is they sold their their property, but instead of being like Barnabas and freely giving, they held some back, which holding some back was not the problem, but they acted as if they were giving everything because they wanted to look better than they really are. And so they lied to God. So we see that same spirit at work in the early church. And so what we see is that there are, just as there were Israelites who were Israelites only of the flesh and not of the heart, we see that there are people within the church who likewise are only Christians outwardly, not inwardly. They are not trusting Christ. But for to you and I, it looks like they are. But yet, this is a reality. So, what happens now is we see two things about Cain. The first is, he's angry. And the idea here is kindling. It's like the starting of a fire. You know, those early, it's, it's going to become a conflagration. It's going to become a great blaze, but right now it's just waiting to break out. There's smoke and there's a little flame, but it's about to get a whole lot worse. In addition to that, he's downcast, meaning his face is down. We had a child in our previous congregation who was infamous for his pose when he was downcast. In fact, I hope I don't think he does it anymore, but this used to be what he would do. It became known as the Carl Pose. And it was just a sign, you know, and I can, I can see Cain kind of walking around. His eyes are not to heaven because he believes God hates him and has a horrible plan for his life. And he's looking to the earth because he, see, he has no hope. He's being consumed by his anger and he has no hope. 
God hates false religion. That's what's going on in this part of the story. And that false religion is characterized by unbelief and selfishness. So let's move on to Act 3, so to speak. Not only does God examine the heart to exalt those of faith, but we see that God says sin is the greatest danger to your soul. Which is kind of confusing because Cain thought Abel was his biggest problem. What we see here should astound us. Who does God show up to? Cain. Who does he look upon with favor? Abel. Why isn't God showing up at Abel's door going, Dude, your brother hates you and he's going to kill you. He doesn't do that. He shows up to the brother in trouble whose heart is afflicted by sin and he sets out to warn him, not, I'm going to get you. But he comes to reason with him. He comes to instruct him. He says that sin crouches at the door. This Friday we went to the zoo and I noticed things. And so we're by the jaguar cage, and, you know, there's a couple jaguars up there, and they're kind of cool looking, you know, big black cats. And on the little sign, it says that they do not hunt like the lions and the tigers do. What the jaguar does is he waits to ambush. So he'll kind of just sit in a tree, and some unlucky animal will come strolling down, and he pounces to get the animal. That's sin. God says that sin crouches behind the door like a criminal, like a thief, waiting for you to poke your head out so he can go, bam! That's the picture. God likes to give us pictures so we can understand things. Okay? Sin seeks to control and to destroy Cain. And the interesting thing is, is God says, You must master it. It's something like on the lines of what the Puritan uh, John Owen said. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. We grossly misunderestimate our struggle with sin because we do not see the end result of it very often. And so we think we're just dealing with, you know, a tiny little snake, a little garter snake, when really it's a viper that seeks to destroy us. But ultimately we see that God is telling him that Abel was not his enemy. Abel wasn't his problem. And beyond that, God was not his problem. He has convinced himself that Abel and God are his main problem. And God is saying, nope, let's change your perspective on this thing. Sin is the problem. Sin is the enemy. Cain, you need to make your war against sin, not your brother. You need to destroy it, not your brother. Paul talks about this 
in Ephesians chapter 4, when he says, and he, and he quotes the psalm that we read this morning, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger, lest you give the devil a foothold. And that idea of a foothold is similar to what we saw uh, in an invasion uh, like D-Day. A beachhead. A place where you can put all of the supplies to begin to make sure your army can advance farther and farther inland. And so what happens, Paul says, is that our unrighteous anger, when we allow it to grow, creates a beachhead for the evil one to make greater and greater inroads inroads to the destruction of our soul. Greater and greater sins taking place. Okay? So it's dangerous. Temptation is the root, and unaddressed it breaks forth in poisonous fruit. And we see that in crime and punishment. You know, I don't know what goes through a guy's mind to kind of think, it might be a good thing for society for me to kill them. And then to entertain that such that he really believes that it is good. He's doing society a favor by killing the woman who runs the pawn shop. But he does. That is the fruit of the temptation. So, that's not all that's going on here. He kills his brother. But God shows up again. Now, we don't know if this was in a dream. We don't know if this is, uh, you know, in a, in a disembodied voice. We, we don't know how this happened. We just know that it did happen. Okay? Because the scripture is not clear on how, just that it did. So God approaches Cain again, and it's, it's just like Genesis 3. Where's your brother? God knows where his brother is. He's seeking to bring confession. He's seeking for for Cain to to unload his soul and say, I killed my brother. Instead, he has this response. Am I my brother's keeper? Same word that we find in Genesis chapter 2. When when talking about the garden, there was no one to keep watch over it or guard it. That idea of one who takes exercises great care and vigilance over something. And so what Cain is saying is, am I supposed to exercise care over my brother? Yesterday, working on the van, Amy had some errands that she was running, and I'm supposed to be exercising great care over my kids while I'm working on the van. But, you know, uh, at one point I asked Jaden, where's your brother? I don't know. She wasn't exercising great care, just like I wasn't exercising great care. She probably learned it from me. No, she learned it from Adam. Um, (laughs) But you see, she did not see the responsibility as an older child to look out for the younger child to make sure that he was safe. And that is what's going on here. Cain is basically saying, I have no responsibility for my brother. You want to know where he is? You go find him. Not my job. And he's wrong. Deadly wrong. Yes, we are our brother's keeper. Yes, that's part of what, how God has, in, has worked all of this so that we might fight sin. Gives us one another. To watch over and exercise great care over one another. To say, how you doing? How are you fighting temptation this week? Are you winning or are you losing? Are you looking to Christ? 
or are you looking to yourself? What's happening? So we are our brother's keeper. And it is there when God says something else that echoes Genesis 3. He says, what have you done? It sounds just like what he said to his mother. What have you done? Cain's heart is hard. He does not confess his sin. He does not turn from it. He does not really care what God thinks about what he has done. And so what happens is that God heightens the curse. It's almost like you thought it was bad before. Let's see how it goes now. The ground that he soaked in blood will no longer yield to his labor. He was a farmer. His livelihood was just taken away from him because of his sin. Not only that, but see, Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. But what is he banished from? The presence of God. Adam and Eve still knew something of the presence of God, even though they had been removed from the garden. There was some mercy that was shown to them and that they still were in some relationship with God because of the shedding of the blood of the animals. But now, out of here. Cain is sent to be a wandering fugitive. And, yeah, if you saw my Facebook this week, you'll see it. was like, oh, Kung Fu. That's Cain. That's where they get it. He was a wandering fugitive, committed murder, and he's fleeing from the authorities in China and comes to America. See? It makes sense, Ken, doesn't it? (laughs) Makes sense. Except there's no kung fu in this story, all right? You know? And he goes to the land of Nod, which means wandering. He goes farther east from Eden and wanders for a while anyway. We'll talk about that again next week a little bit. But Cain, instead of being struck with remorse at what he's done, really has self-pity. And he's, cause, you know, and he's angry with God. And he's like, oh, that's too horrible for me. Or, as children would say, that's not fair. He thinks the consequences of his actions are not fair. That they're somehow unjust. When in fact, justice would indicate that he would perish. And yet God showed him mercy even in this. And God showed him mercy again because even as he sent him out, he said, okay, I'm going to put a mark upon you. Some people think it's the first tattoo. I don't think so. All right. Some whacked out people think it's the color of his skin. No. Doesn't have anything to do with that. There was something that the other people around would know, don't touch this man or you'll be paid back. So God shows mercy, even his, in the severity of his justice, he shows mercy toward Cain. So, he, he seeks to, he sought to restrain his sin, and now he does not execute full justice. Let's move on to Act 4 of this particular story, which is not really found here. It's found in Hebrews 12, that the shed blood of Jesus still speaks, forgiven. The blood of Abel cried out to God. That's what he says. The blood of your brother cries out to me. Murder. Guilty. Avenge. 
Just sort of like in the book Crime and Punishment, his own heart is condemning him. He, he, he can't sleep at night anymore because he, he knows the guilt. And so guilt comes up. It shows up somehow. Not so much in Abel. I'm sorry, in Cain here. But Abel is crying out. His blood is crying out for the, for the crime that's been committed against him. And the reality is, is that we must all stand before God, who is, in fact, the judge of all people. And Hebrews 12 talks about that as well. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better, a better word than the blood of Abel. Connects it somehow. Our sins cry out against us. They cry out that we are guilty of anger, unrighteous anger, that we're guilty of hatred, that we're guilty of verbally assaulting other people. If, I mean, imagine what Jesus, think about what Jesus says. You have heard it said that if you murder your brother, you will be condemned. But I say to you that even if you call your brother raka or fool, idiot, moron, jerk, You'll be liable. Why? Because you're making an assault upon the image of God. And so, you know, when we verbally abuse people, that's what we're doing. We're, we're assaulting the image of God. We're accountable for that. And so we don't think, well, I haven't killed anybody. But Jesus says, no, you haven't, but you're still guilty. Your hatred, your bitterness, your grudges, all of these things call out against us as we are guilty even if we never physically assault anybody. We are all essentially like Cain. We are envious of, of others and the goodness that they experience. And we, are, we often can be filled with bitterness and spite. I heard a sermon on this uh, about six months ago. I was, uh, we heard a, a student sermon at a presbytery meeting. And it was funny because he was talking about this text and he goes, Now, you pastors, he says, you're going you're gonna to minister to people like Cain in your congregations. And I'm thinking to myself, he doesn't know who we are. <laughs> we are Cain. Ever hear pastors talk to each other? Ever hear of the envy they have in one, their hearts towards how one church is doing better than their church? Same thing. Same thing. We're guilty, you know? And I told them later, you know, because overall it was a good sermon, but I said, just to let you know, we don't just minister to people who are like Cain. We are like Cain. And we need to hear that good word too. And so we see that Jesus is like Abel. He was slain by a bitter and angry brother, actually a whole bunch of them, who put him to death his angry, bitter brother Israelites. Why? Because they didn't have what he had. The relationship with God that they wanted, they could not get apart from him. So we see that to those who believe, who trust in him, his blood speaks a better word, because that's the context here in Hebrews, is that they have believed what uh, you know put their faith in Christ and what he has done and to them his blood speaks a better word it says you are forgiven you are accepted by the father you are welcome on this mountain that the israelites were afraid to approach 
But to those who do not believe, to those who deny the reality of the blood of Christ, it speaks a bitter word. It says you're still guilty, you're still condemned, you need to repent and believe. So the blood of Christ speaks still more loudly than the blood of Abel. A better word than the blood of Abel. Because the blood of Christ can bring reconciliation, redemption, peace with God. So sin, like a jaguar, pounces on us to destroy us. It, it, it has, in fact, mastered us. It plays with us like a little, like a cat plays with a toy sometimes. And we serve its destructive interests. But there is one who can free us from our guilty stains. Jesus, whose blood speaks forgiveness. Why don't we pray? Father, um, the story that you're unfolding in, in this part of Genesis is not a pretty one. And yet it's not something like way back there, but it's something that continues to be played out in the hearts of people all around the world, in every heart. And we thank you that you have warned us about the, the gravity and the danger of sin, its destructive power, and that it is the mortal enemy of our soul. That Satan is like a lion roaming restlessly, seeking whom it may devour. We thank you that we are not left alone, but that you have sent your Son to save sinners such as us, to protect those whom he saves. We thank you that when Jesus grasps a hold of someone, there is no one who can take them out because he holds us with almighty power. We thank you for that. And we ask that you would keep all those who trust in Christ and his work safe and secure until the day when he returns to bring us home. And we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.